And our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, and it's in your books in front of you. So Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Here's my question for us tonight. It's on the screen. The question is, uh, does the church have a future? I wonder if you, how you'd answer that question. Does the church have a future? If you believe the stats, you probably answer no. Here's some scary stats for you about the church. Over the last 10 years in Australia, uh, church membership has declined by 6%. Church attendance has declined by 18%. 40% of our churches in Australia today have no one under the age of 11 in them. So two out of five churches have no one under the age of 11, part of that church. Over the last 20 years, there's been a 90% decline in under 20s attending church. And if you believe the stats, you go, wow, the church is dying. The church has no future. Does the church have a future if you believe the, the media? Your answer would still be no. You know, the newspaper headlines of sexual misconduct, sex scandals, financial misconducts, homophobia, misogynists, irrelevant, outdated... Go back to watch the Catholic Church appoint a new Pope. Who'd want that job? And we're saying, what's the point? Here in Sydney, we're about to appoint a new Archbishop, and some are saying, what's the point? The Church has no future. Does the Church have a future? Maybe you belong to a church, maybe you belong to this church, and you'd still say, no, I don't think so. 
uh, because your experience of church is so bad. Your experience of church is so much like the world, and it, you sit here and no one talks to you, and, and you, you witness the slander and the gossip and the lie. You think it's no different to the world, so what's the point? Does the church have a future? No, probably not. Of course, the stats that I just shared with you are not actually representative across the whole world. In, in reality, the, the percentage of people who call themselves Christians today in the world is higher than at any time in history. The church is thriving in Africa, in Asia, in South America. The church there is experiencing extraordinary growth. And the church there is making a huge difference in the world. It's not just stats, is it? We have to go for the word of God. When Jesus said, I will build my church, that's the promise of Jesus. He will build his church. And he has been building his church from a small group of 12 or so people in a room in Jerusalem to the millions around the world today. He has been building his church. He will build his church. Does the church have a future? Of course it does. Because according to this passage tonight from Ephesians chapter 3, the church is the future. The church is right at the centre of what God is doing in his world. The church isn't just part of the future. The future is the church. Just flick back to Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10. We're told where the world is heading. Ephesians 1 verse 9 says that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's where the world is heading. We're heading for a day when everything and everybody comes under the lordship of Christ. And here's the shock. That's where we're heading but this, the church, us, people gathered under Christ today, this diverse group of people, different backgrounds, different classes, different ages, different stages, different personalities, the church is actually a foretaste and a picture of that last day. The church is a bit like a show home. You ever been to a show home? If you're buying a, an apartment... You can get the plans of the apartment and you can see the architectural sketch of the apartment. You can go to the website and you can see what it's going to look like when it's finished. But, but when they build an apartment block, they always build a show home. It's quite bizarre, really. You walk up to almost this building site. And in the middle of this building site, you've got this show home. And you walk in and it's like a real home. You've got a carpet and you've got wallpaper and you've got pictures up there and you've got couches and you've got beds and it's almost functional but it's stuck in the middle of the building site so why do they, do they build a show home because they want to show you what the finished product's going to be like they want to whet your appetite for what it's going to be like to live there and that's the church isn't it we're like the show home God is showing us what it's like on that last day when everything's under his lordship. Yeah, we're living in the middle of a building site because God is still growing his church. But we are the show home. And when the church functions well, when we really are a group of people who are diverse, 
different different likes, different dislikes, different opinions, different races, different nations, different languages, but we're, we're one in Christ and we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we love each other. That is the church. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now, today, through the church, through the gathering, that's you and me, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Because the Bible is very clear, there is a spiritual realm, there is a, a heavenly realm, there are cosmic beings out there, and when the church functions properly, when we love each other and we reconcile with each other and we carry each other's burdens, then we shouldn't be surprised when the heavenly realms shudder. Because they go, wow, the gospel really does change lives. And the, the Paul finishes Ephesians by reminding us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual forces. And you know, the spiritual forces, Satan, Satan smiles every time he sees declining numbers in a church because he thinks that, yeah, he's won. And Satan smiles every time he sees factions and fighting in the church because the gospel seems weak. And Satan smiles every time there's scandal in the church because the gospel seems weak. But when the church, full of people who love Jesus and love each other, and show that in the way that they relate, when that happens, Satan shudders because the gospel really is very attractive. And my aim tonight is just to send you from this place going, wow, God's church is pretty extraordinary. Let's look at the passage in detail. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. He starts the sentence in verse 1 that he doesn't complete until verse 14. He's about to pray for the church and he, he kind of gets distracted, he gets off on a tangent. I love the fact that even the apostle gets distracted and goes off on the tangent. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm in prison for Jesus because I've been preaching that we're one in Jesus. But surely, verse 2, you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Have you heard my story, he says? Do you remember my story how I used to be a zealous Jew, I used to persecute the church, I used to be this meticulous lawkeeper, and one day on the Damascus road I met Jesus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I met Jesus and my life was totally transformed and here I am today and I'm preaching about grace, I'm preaching the gospel and for that I'm in prison, for your sake. Then comes a repeated word, the mystery. What, what is Paul preaching? He's preaching a mystery. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. That, that word mystery comes three times in our, our text. Verse 3, the mystery. Verse 4, the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery. When we hear the word mystery, please don't think uh, Agatha Christie or John Grisham. It's not sort of a, a, a dark plot that somebody one day will uh, discover and understand. That's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. The word mystery means that it means something that we could never know, something we, we could never understand unless it was revealed to us. 
But once it has been revealed, it's no longer a mystery. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, last Saturday, I was at a wedding. Of course, I was at a wedding. It's a Saturday. Every Saturday is a wedding. I love weddings, by the way. Uh, I could never have guessed the middle name of the groom. His middle name was a total mystery. I could never have guessed it in a million years. I could have sat there. I could have gone through all these name books and never have possibly guessed what his middle name was. And I walked into this wedding ceremony and there on the order of service was his middle name in print. And it was no longer a mystery. It was revealed to me. I now know it. It's not hidden from me anymore. And you're probably all sitting there thinking, what was his middle name? <laughs> his middle name was Cadwallader. Good name, isn't it? Cadwallader. And the point is that the gospel was a revelation. It was a mystery, but it was made known. He says in verse 4 that it's a mystery about Christ, the one who's been raised, the one who's been seated, the one whose blood reconciles us. Verse 5, it wasn't known to people in other generations. So, you know, Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Deborah, they didn't know this mystery, but but God revealed it to Paul, not just to Paul, but to all the apostles and prophets by his Spirit. So what is the mystery? Verse 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, through the good news, the Gentiles, that, that's people who were cut off from God and excluded from citizenship, they could never be right with God. Through the gospel of Jesus, the Gentiles are heirs together, members together, and share us together in the promise of Christ Jesus. It's extraordinary. That is the mystery that God has made known to Paul and to us, that, that we're right with God, not by law-keeping, but by the blood of Jesus. We're right with God, not by the temple, but by the blood of Jesus. You are right with God, not by circumcision, but by the blood of Jesus. And everybody gets right with God by the same way, and it's called the blood of Jesus. That is the mystery. And you might think, oh, yes, I know that. That's just normal. It's not normal. It's revolutionary. And the fact that if you're a Gentile here tonight, that, that you could be right with God, that is revolutionary. Please don't take that for granted. You are heirs together. You are members together. You are sharers together. That's the mystery of the gospel, that, that God takes diverse people he doesn't care about your race or your background or your education or your social skills. He doesn't care about anything. He just unites you in Jesus. And we're all equal. That's the power of the gospel. The revelation of the gospel that we're one in Christ. But secondly, Paul calls himself a servant of the gospel. He says in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel. That was his life. He was a slave for Jesus. And now when you've met Jesus, when you've encountered the risen Lord Jesus, your life can never be the same again. Turns your life upside down. Your life no longer about, about your hobbies and your holidays or your health or your possessions or your popularity. Your life's all about Jesus now. You ever met people who are new believers? They've met Jesus for the very first time and they just can't stop talking about Jesus. But 22 years ago when I met Jesus, 
everybody who met me, I just talked about Jesus. I just couldn't help it. That, that, that enthusiasm, that passion to talk about Jesus. And that was the Apostle Paul, not just for the first month of his life, but for the rest of his Christian life, his purpose was just to preach Jesus. He says in verse 8, that's his mission statement, to preach, to literally to evangelize is the word there, to evangelize to the Gentiles, to the lost, the boundless riches of Christ. Now I know that Paul was commissioned by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm not saying that we've been commissioned in the same way, but we have been entrusted with the same gospel. So what's it going to look like for you and I to be servants of this gospel? You've got to have a right attitude towards yourself. I love Paul's humility in verse 7. He was the most famous church planter in the whole world. But he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. It wasn't deserved. I didn't earn it. It was given to me through the working of God's power. It's all about God's grace. It's all about God's power. Paul didn't choose himself. God chose him. And then he says in verse 8, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. He literally says, although I am leaster. I love the fact that not only does the apostle get sidetracked and distracted, but he makes up words, although I'm leaster. He's trying to communicate, I'm just a wretched sinner. I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people. I'm not the the good, godly person that you think I am. I know what I'm really like deep down. I'm a sinner saved by grace. See, Paul wasn't puffed up. He wasn't proud. He's totally aware of how frail he really is. And if we're going to be a servant of the gospel, you need to have that same attitude, that humility. I'm just less than the least of all of God's people. A right attitude towards yourself, a right attitude towards others. He says in verse 9, his goal is to, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, to make plain to everybody he meets the gospel of grace, to tell everybody about Jesus. And I imagine that Paul met rich businessmen, but he talked about Jesus. He met poor people, he talked about Jesus. He met aged people, he talked about Jesus. He met kids, he talked about Jesus. Whoever he met, he just talked about Jesus because everybody needs to hear. And then he had a beautiful attitude towards Jesus. Look as he says in verse 8. He wanted to preach to the Gentiles, but not about church, not about God, not about... Christianity, not about religion. He wants to preach the, the boundless riches of Christ. Four beautiful words, the boundless riches of Christ. Other versions say the inexplorable riches, the untraceable riches, the unfathomable riches, the illimitable riches of Christ. He's just saying, when I think about Jesus, I just can't even begin to plumb the depths of all the riches I can find in Jesus. When I think about Jesus, the fact that he loves me, he's adopted me, he's rescued me, he's redeemed me, he, he's given me peace. And I have found the more people love Jesus, the more they want to talk about him. The more they plumb the depths of the riches of Christ, the more they want to talk about Jesus.
I once interviewed a person for a man for a job here at Church by the Bridge about four or five years ago. And I sat with him for over an hour in a cafe and I interviewed him for a job here. And I, I said, hey, what are you passionate about? He said, I love teaching the Bible. I love sitting in my study. I like writing sermons. I like just sitting with the Bible and expanding and exegeting the text. I sat with him for another half an hour. And after half an hour, I said, I, I love the fact that you love teaching the Bible. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you love the people that you teach? Do you love the people that you preach to? Or do you, do you just like academic study? Do you love the lost? Do you, do you actually think that there are lost people out there who need to hear about Jesus? Or do you just like sitting in your study, studying the Bible? And do you love Jesus? Or is it just about the Bible itself? See, so the more that we love Jesus, the more that we love people, the more we preach Christ. And the reality is, friends, that your mission field will be different to mine. You'll have access to people that I will never meet. But you meet them every day. And you just humbly, in your own way, with your own personality, you just preach the boundless riches of Christ. Lastly tonight, the demonstration of the gospel. The church of Christ. How is God going to demonstrate to the world just how glorious Jesus is? How is God going to make known to a lost world just how amazing the gospel of grace is? And the answer is the church. This kind of blows your mind. Look at verse 10. God's intent was that now, today, not, not on the last day, but today, through the church, that is, people saved by grace, people who are different but united in Christ, as we gather together, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the heavenly realms, to the spiritual realms according to God's eternal purpose that he comes in Christ Jesus. Uh, someone's described life as like, uh, like a, a, a theatre. And, and so the, the, the stage is, is the whole world. And on that stage, there are actors called the church. So we're, we're on the stage, we're part of the world. And we've got a great director, he is God himself. And there's an audience watching the church in the world, and the audience is called the, the cosmic beings, the, the, the heavenly realms. And according to chapter 3, verse 10, it's through the church, through the way that we relate on the stage, the way that we behave on the stage, the way that we relate to each other, that the audience sees how powerful the gospel really is. And you see how important the church is? When a church functions properly, when we forgive the hurts, when we welcome the stranger, when we speak the truth in love, when we build each other up, not tear each other down, 
when we get rid of the bitterness and get rid of the bitching, get rid of the fighting, get rid of the factions, just do the normal mundane things of loving each other and being kind to each other. When the church functions like that, Satan shudders because he sees how powerful the gospel of grace really is. The church is it's like a choir, isn't it? If you ever sung in the choir, what would you need to have a choir? You need people. <laughs> if you've got no people, you've got no choir. You need different people. You don't just need a choir full of sopranos. You need sopranos and altos and tenors and basses. You certainly don't need people who all want to be soloists. That makes a dreadful choir, doesn't it, when everyone thinks that they're a soloist. You need people just happy to be part of the chorus. You need people who listen to each other, who actually sing in harmony with each other, not sing against each other. And you need people who are going to actually work with a common goal, listening to the conductor, following the conductor, doing what he tells you you should do. And that is the church, isn't it? We've got a great conductor, his name is God. He's going to tell us in chapters 4 to 6 how to live as church. And you know what? It's not that radical. It's not that exciting. He doesn't talk about big buildings with flashing lights and big sound systems. He just talks about the normal mundane things of life, like doing random acts of kindness and forgiving and speaking the truth and having good marriages and good families and good workplace relations. And when we do that, you know, the world notices. I'm about to put into the letterbox of people throughout our parish, those Easter flyers, inviting people to, to meet Jesus this Easter. And my prayer is that as they go into the letterboxes, people will grab that flyer and they'll see the words like grace, healing, mercy, forgiveness. I think, oh, I want that. And they would come to church at Easter. And I can guarantee when they walk through this door, the gospel will be preached. We'll preach it boldly. We'll preach it prayerfully. We'll preach Jesus from the pulpit. But you know what's going to make a difference to those people who walk into this building? It's not just hearing the gospel, is it? It's seeing the gospel lived. It's when they see people who ordinarily would have nothing to do with each other. But you love each other. It's when they see people who are being really kind to each other because we're not like the world. It's when they see people who go out of their way to forgive. Then the gospel is suddenly more than just words, it's actually reality. You see, we've got a part to play, haven't we? We're called the church. I'll put my hand up. I, I do love the church. I love this church. I love God's church. I, I love it when I see two people who ordinarily would have nothing to do with each other and are sitting in the same building, praising Jesus together, hugging each other, or for those who are more restrained, shaking hands with each other. 
because we're one in Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. And I can think of nothing better to do with my entire life than just preach Jesus. But we're not just preachers, we're, we're people, we're church. And we need to actually live out what we preach. Unity in Christ. Oneness in Jesus. And as we do that, you know, we make known to the whole world just how powerful the gospel of grace really is. I'll finish with this quote. The watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism, but it's attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. We've got a part to play. I have and so have you. Let's just rejoice in the church, shall we? Does a church have a future? Of course it does. We are the future. Let me pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for your your grace, your mercy, the boundless riches of Christ. We can't even begin to plumb the depths of just how glorious Jesus is. Lord, you've called us to be church. You've called us to be people who are not only reconciled to you, but we're reconciled to each other and we love each other. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes we fail. And we need your forgiveness. Up on the screen there's a confession that we're going to say together, asking for forgiveness for times when we failed as a church. Not just individually, but as a church. Let's say this together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation.